Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm so, so pleased to have as my guest today, Jenny Henthorne, granddaughter of George and Jenny Sodder, and daughter of Sylvia Sodder Paxton, one of the known survivors of the tragedy we're about to discuss today. The fire that burned down her grandparents' family home and disappearance of five of her aunts and uncles on Christmas in 1945. This is a mystery that has been written about, debated, pondered by amateur sleuthing groups for years. It holds great fascination with many, many people around the country. Thank you so much. I know that it's probably not easy discussing such a personal and sensitive family matter, and I appreciate so much your willingness to speak to me. Thank you for having me on your show. Let's talk first about your grandparents, George and Jenny Sauter of Fayetteville, West Virginia. How long had your family lived in West Virginia prior to Christmas of 1945? And what did your grandfather do for a living? My grandfather came to the United States when he was 13, and um, he had immigrated with his brother. His brother went home soon after they arrived. Apparently, he'd grown homesick and left. My grandfather wanted to stay. So at first, he worked the railroads. Um, carrying supplies back and forth to the workers because he was too young to have one of those regular jobs. And then after that, he slowly made his way to West Virginia and started working first as a cab driver and then later on in trucking. He met my grandmother, who immigrated when she was two with her family. They owned a little local store in Smithers. And he went into the store and met my grandmother, and they fell in love soon thereafter and married, and the rest was history. So they lived in the area for their entire adult lives. 
Your grandparents had a big family. Uh, what were the names and ages of all the children? The the oldest, and I'll, I'll give you their ages at the time of the fire. The oldest two were John and Joe. John and Joe were 21 and 23 years old. Well, actually, John was 23. Joe was 21. Uh, they had just been in the war, and John had made it home, but Joe still had not made it there. Marion um, was 18. She worked at a little local five and dime. Ted was 16. He worked with my grandfather in his business, as did my older uncles um, before they had gone to war. Morris was 14. Martha was 12. Louis was nine. Jenny was eight. Betty was the one closest to my mom's age. She was five. And my mom was the baby. She was two at the time of the fire. Um, years later, there was another baby, Michael, who was born but died soon after childbirth. So let's talk about Christmas Eve, 1945. What prompted your grandparents to wake up at one in the morning? Well, my grandmother was a notoriously light sleeper. And there had been a couple of events earlier in the evening that had disturbed her sleep. And I think we'll talk about those a little later. But my grandmother woke up to the smell of smoke. And she went into the hallway to see what it was. And she could actually see visible smoke at that point. So she went back in to wake my grandfather and then went into the living room to wake up my Aunt Marion, who had fallen asleep on the couch. My grandfather ran to the stairs to yell for the children, whose bedrooms were upstairs. Um, There were two different rooms, one for the boys and one for the girls. And then they all started to make their way to the door as the kids came tumbling down the stairs. And they didn't realize until they were outside that the five children were missing and unaccounted for. So it was then that they realized that something was wrong and everybody was trying to run back inside to find the other children, but the house was becoming quickly engulfed in flames and they weren't able to get back upstairs. So my grandfather tried to find a ladder that was always propped up against the house. It was missing. My uncles were trying to run back up the stairs and and actually got burned, trying to make their way back upstairs to see if the children were still in the bedrooms. It kind of went downhill quickly from there. And so just to clarify, your mom, Sylvia, who was two, had been in your grandparents' bedroom. One son was away in the Army, and your uncles, John and George, who shared an upstairs room, had gotten out on their own. And your Aunt Marion had managed to escape as well. But the children in the two other upstairs bedrooms on either end of the hallway, Morris, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, never came down. Your grandparents were in absolute panic and despair, of course, and the Fayetteville Fire Department was called. But firefighters got there much too late to be of any help. Can you talk about the difficulties the fire department had in arriving at the family home? Sure. Um, when when they realized that they weren't able to get into the house and find the children, the first thought was to get to someone who could get help. So they tried to start the truck. Um, that there, there'd never been a trouble with the truck starting, um, but they couldn't get the truck to start. And they had just all kinds of mechanical issues and things going wrong. My aunt Marion ran to get help, ran to the nearest neighbor to try to get help to um, 
bring the fire department. They made a phone call from there, and Marion came quickly back, but the fire truck never came. And some of the neighbors, I mean, there weren't houses that were very close. I mean, it was kind of an isolated area at the time, but there were neighbors a certain distance away, and the fire started to draw them in. And people were going back and forth trying to get the fire department to come. But apparently the fire department, because it was Christmas Eve, there was only one gentleman that could be reached. He couldn't get other people to respond. The fire truck would start. And so it was really the next morning, it was daylight before the fire department ever showed up at the site of the fire, and the fire had burned out a long time before that. So not only did the fire department arrive the next morning, but a local police inspector as well. What did authorities discover or not discover as they sifted and searched through the rubble? Honestly, at that time, no one thought anything about any other possible outcome other than that the children had burned in the fire. My grandparents were absolutely devastated. Um, it was it was just such a shock to the family. I mean, they'd lost their home. They didn't have even the basic necessities, and it was winter at that point. I mean, they lost everything. So the focus at that time was just on getting through those first couple of days. I don't think that it occurred to anybody at that time that something other than the fire could have possibly caused the children to be gone. It was just assumed that they had perished in the fire. So those first hours were just people trying to come up was some way to bring some comfort to my grandparents. My grandparents had a little vegetable stand that was near the house, and that is actually where they turned for refuge after the fire, and uh, it, it took a while for them to rebuild. So those first couple of days, there were no thoughts about anything other than just trying to deal with the tragic loss. There were a lot of people that showed up. There was a lot of confusion. There was a concern because the house was constructed with a basement about safety. And somebody, I don't know if it was the fire marshal or another city official, told my grandfather that he needed to move quickly to fill in the spot so that it wouldn't be a danger because it was close to the public road as well. So my grandfather was told pretty quickly that he needed to do what he could to reclaim that site and get it covered. Um, And I don't think that there was much else discussed with my grandparents at that time other than the condolences of the community. Do you know where your grandparents and family stayed? Was it with a neighbor or another family member nearby? I think that they moved pretty quickly. My grandfather turned the little vegetable stand into a temporary shelter for the family until a new house could be built. And I think that there may have been some time that they stayed with one of the neighbors. I'm not certain of the details of that, but I know that it wasn't very long at all. Things were different then. People felt much more of a sense of propriety to their own lives. And I know that it was a priority for my family to stay together and to not be a burden on others. So I think it was pretty quickly that they had converted the vegetable stand into a temporary residence. So as your family is is processing this tragedy and trying to come to grips with things, questions arise as to whether your aunts and uncles, assumed dead, might actually be missing instead. Much of this has to do with the fact that there were no remains of any of them found afterwards. Not the tiniest piece of bone, nothing. Was it the police that eventually raised these questions? 
Yeah, it actually was my grandparents who started to have the realization, and it was because of a number of strange things that didn't occur to them at the time of the fire, but started to materialize in their heads. And one of the early things was, you're exactly right, They, my grandmother was concerned with the fact, I mean, they spent a lot of time shifting through the rubble looking for the children. And there were no signs, no bones, no evidence that the children perished in the fire. They wanted to give them a proper burial. So they looked, couldn't find anything. But they found other things that if the children entirely burned, should have also disappeared. They found part of a telephone book. There were a number of coins that were still entirely recognizable that my grandmother kept until she passed away. There was a whole series of things that were in the house that were not fully consumed by the fire, and that, but they couldn't find any bones. So my grandmother started to do experiments. She took First, she put chicken bones in fire and burned, and no matter how hot she burned them, there were still remnants left. And then she did the same thing with other types of bones. No matter what she burned, there was still some part of the bone left. There were also a series of strange events that had occurred prior to the fire that once they started thinking about it, made them more concerned that perhaps there was something else at play. So at the night of the fire, my grandmother received a strange phone call a little before the fire started, and it, it was a woman laughing, and there was background noise, and a, a person's name was mentioned, but it wasn't anybody my grandmother knew, and she assumed that it was just a wrong number. And a little after that, she was awakened again by the sound of a thumping, something hitting the roof and rolling, and she, once again, didn't think anything about it. She just went back to sleep. But both of those events were peculiar. They'd not had anything else happen like that before. And then a little later, when the telephone company came to do the work to reinstall service for their temporary house, the, the gentleman said that it appeared that the power lines had been cut, that they had not actually been burned, and the telephone lines were the same, that all of the lines to the residents appeared to have been actually cut and that the damage was not the sort, not caused by the fire. There were a couple of things that happened before that. In the weeks leading up to it, there was a stranger who had shown up at the house state saying that he wanted to work for my grandfather, but he ran around to the back of the house and started looking at the electrical panel, saying that he thought that it looked like it could cause a fire if my grandfather wasn't careful. And my grandfather told him that he had literally just had it inspected and was told that it was fine, and he thought that was peculiar. A little after that, an insurance salesman showed up saying that he needed to purchase life insurance policies on all of those children because it was, you know, anything could happen at any time. And that just struck my grandparents. So they really started to wonder whether something was amiss. And then after the fire, um, my grandfather discovered not all, of, not all of the buildings on the property burned up. And his business operations were from his residence. So the trucking company's business operations were next door to the residence as well. And he had some equipment that was stolen from the building during the night of the fire. And the gentleman was eventually caught 
for that. And it was just too many things lining up that told him that something was peculiar with that night that uh, had something to do with something bigger than the fire. Did the police ever take your grandparents' suspicions seriously? No, no. It took, I don't know that my grandparents were ever taken fully serious by the law enforcement community. I think that there were certainly people who empathized with them. But I think, generally speaking, the the mood of the local law enforcement was that my grandparents were grieving individuals who could not accept or cope with the loss of their children. So time marches on. But your grandparents just don't give up on this, do they? Yeah. And their own personal investigation continues for years. And soon sightings of the children are reported in many places, and people keep talking about this because your grandparents refuse to be passive. Once my grandparents realized that they were not going to get much assistance from the police, they started to hire um, investigators. And when they did that, stories started to emerge about the children and about sightings. There was someone who said that they saw the children being driven away from the fire in the back of a car looking backward at the house. There was another story about them being seen in a restaurant um, moving away from Fayetteville toward Charleston and that the children seemed to be distressed. And then there's another story story from a lady who had a hotel in Charleston, and she reported that the children came to the hotel in the company of two gentlemen and two women who were of Italian descent, and that the children were distressed and that the adults that they were, that were accompanying them were um, very suspicious of the hotel owners, but when the hotel personnel started trying to talk to the children, they became belligerent and left very early the next morning before any more inquiries could be made. So my grandparents started to get some information that corroborated that the children may have departed that night and may actually still be out there. So my grandparents began uh, that they, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many private investigators they worked with and how many letters they sent to local law enforcement agencies and the fire marshal, the FBI. They just did everything they could to try to bring attention to the matter and to inquire about possibilities for where the children may have gone if they didn't perish in the fire. Ultimately, they decided that they needed to do a new physical investigation of the site. That's where it kept coming is that they didn't believe that the work that was done immediately after the fire was adequate to determine whether the bones were present. That kept being brought up by everyone that they talked to in the law enforcement and fire community. So my grandfather hired some renowned individuals to come in and do a thorough investigation of the property. And that was years after the fire, but still well within the years where it would have been possible to maybe find the children if they were still alive somewhere. And that would have been in 1949. Your grandparents brought in a pathologist from Washington, D.C., named Oscar B. Hunter to excavate the site. 
Can you talk about that excavation and what he found? Yes, he was at the site for a number of days, and this was truly a scientific investigation. It sounds like, you know, we we forget how sophisticated we were in 1949. He set up a grid pattern on the property. He brought in trays and used a full scientific investigation of the property to identify whatever remains they could that were there. And, you know, separate and apart from my little things that my grandmother had from the fire, they found all kinds of evidence that the fire did not burn as intensely as they believed at first. There there were a number of household items that were still fully intact in the remains. What they didn't find were any substantial skeletal remains. The only thing that was identified were a few small vertebrae that were taken back to Washington, D.C. to be analyzed in the laboratory. When they did the pathology on the bones, they determined that they were from a young man who would have been older than Morris based on the condition of the bones, based on the development of the bones, that it would have been somebody who should have been older than 14 but younger than the age of 23. So they didn't believe that the bones could be Morris's. And moreover, there was no evidence that the bones had been exposed to fire. So if the fire had burned intensely enough to ex- to consume the larger bones, then certainly there should have been evidence of fire on those small vertebrae. So they believed that the bones actually were present present in the soil that my grandfather brought in from off-site to fill in the excavation when they um, recovered the site. Do those bones still exist somewhere? I don't know. Um, that is something my grandparents certainly could have answered, but I don't know. I, I believe that they remained at the Smithsonian, but that was so long ago. We we attempted to contact to see if there was any indication that the bones were still present because possibly we could do DNA and other things that could not have been done back in 1949 when the investigation occurred, but we were not able to identify any trace of those bones. I think it was likely because this was done as a private investigation by the Smithsonian. Those were not artifacts that would have ever been logged in any formal way as part of their collection. So I wonder if, and this is just an aside here, in doing interviews with past authors, occasionally bones or other pieces of evidence from infamous events are kept as souvenirs by whoever might have had their hands on them. Is there a possibility that someone, perhaps in the family of Oscar B. Hunter, might still have them in their possession? I can't imagine that they would. There was no scientific significance. I mean, that would have been before anybody thought that DNA testing or anything else would be possible. So for it to be something so random as four vertebrae, I I can't imagine that those would still be something that someone would save all of these years later. I mean, I would I would like to think that that was possible, but we've not been able to find any indication. And Mr. Hunter didn't do the pathology work back at the Smithsonian. It was done by a, another gentleman. So it's just, it's very difficult to tell what possibly happened to those. Absolutely. I know that sometimes skeletons are kept, <laughs> you know? It's possible that those vertebrae are still around somewhere, but to be able to find them and then to identify them back with this particular incident. I can't imagine that they would have been kept or cataloged 
in any way where they would be identifiable. And I, if somebody did have them, I can't imagine that they wouldn't have seen some report somewhere that this, you know, that, that they may be of significance. I, you know, I can't imagine somebody keeping them for no reason, I guess is what I'm saying. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that that's probably a dead end. We, we made some inquiries to try to see if we could find them back when my mom was still well. Um, we tried, gosh, it was probably eight or nine years ago when this story started to garner some attention based on the web sleuth site. And I couldn't track them anywhere. You know, I have some decent political connections in D.C. and I wasn't able to come up with anything. Sure. So let's talk about 1968. Well, maybe before we get to that, let's cover what happened in the 19 years after that 49 excavation first. What happens during that time? Your grandmother puts up a, a billboard, doesn't she? Yes, she does. It is, billboard had pictures of the children and an explanation, a brief explanation of what happened the night of the fire and their plea for information. They figured out it, it's a, it was a lesson hard learned. They worked with investigators who would take their money to go investigate some part of the story. Sometimes they would come back with some information, some little leads. Sometimes they didn't show up at all. They just took the money and left. So my grandparents started to realize that maybe the public would be the best chance of getting information about what happened. So they put up a billboard very close to the site of the house that burned. And it offered a $5,000 reward at first for any information leading to finding the children. And it, it became, honestly, a local landmark. It was just such a disturbing reminder of what had happened in the tragic loss. But it also led people to provide information. There were stories about the children being in Florida, and then there were stories about the children being in Texas, and the, there was a picture my, my grandparents saw themselves of a little girl that was in New York that they believed might be Betty. So all of these, my, my grandparents, any little hope, any little glimmer, my grandparents would become excited and energized and hopeful, and usually my grandfather himself would take off to try to investigate, either with his older sons, or later on my dad accompanied him on a number of the trips trying to see if they could locate the children, and every time my grandfather came back disheartened, he never was able to come up with a lead that materially affected the outcome of this story. While they would get little glimmers, little little bits of hope, none of the leads actually ever materialized into anything that would find, lead them to finding the children. Um, my grandfather passed away in 1968, and he was very ill. He had lymphoma. He was very ill, and one of the last things he did before he died was he heard about the possibility that the kids were in Texas. So my dad put him in the car, and started driving down there, and he wouldn't stop. He was very sick, but he wouldn't stop because he might find the children. So they went straight all the way to Texas, didn't stop, didn't rest, um, got down there, talked to the people. Once again, it was a dead end, and Dad, my grandfather was devastated, and my dad put him in the back seat of the car and let him sleep and drove him home, and that was the last of those trips. That's amazing dedication. And talk about a father's love. 
my grandparents really believed that they were still alive. I mean, they knew that it wasn't an unrealistic belief. They were willing to accept whatever information could be offered about the fate of the children. If the children passed away um, some other way, if they were killed somewhere else, they just wanted to know what happened. They were looking for an answer. It may not be an answer that they liked, but they just wanted to know what happened. So they didn't just investigate leads that the children may be alive. They were told that their bodies were in mine shafts. They were told all kinds of different things and everything, whether it was a positive possible outcome or a negative possible outcome. They they investigated those. They just needed to know what happened. This was a very close, very loving family. And the thought of not knowing, I think that that was the worst part. I think they could have accepted a bad fate for the children so much more than just a false hope. They just needed to know. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So back to 1968, there is a mysterious envelope that lands in your grandparents' mailbox. What was inside, and what did it prompt your grandmother to do? 
maybe I should ask this first. D- did your grandfather pass away before this letter was received? No, it was right after that, um, I believe. My, I was just a baby at this time, so I don't, I don't have my grandfather passed away when I was just one. So I don't have any personal recollection of any of this, but I know it was around the time that he passed away and he was already very sick uh, for a couple of years before that. So the envelope was addressed just to my grandmother and there was one picture inside and it was of a young man with dark hair, dark eyebrows, very Italian looking. And on the back of it, it said, I love Brother Frankie, which was the nickname that Lewis used for Morris, his older brother. So it was just such an improbable combination for it to refer to Lewis Sauter and then to say, I love Brother Frankie, and for it to be such a personal name. We, my, my grandparents were very interested in this. And there was a postmark in the letter from a town in Kentucky or on the envelope from a town in Kentucky. So my grandparents sent an investigator out there to try to determine what they could about the town and to see if the boys may possibly be there. The investigator didn't come back. So my parents ultimately wound up going to the town and driving around to try to see what they could. There was a window in the background of the picture. They drove around trying to find a building that had that particular window in the background, and they couldn't see one. They went to the local high school and asked about yearbooks. They talked to the local law enforcement agencies and just asked around the town, and no one was familiar with a boy that looked like the young man in the picture. So they assumed that perhaps somebody had mailed the picture from that town that had gone there from somewhere else to drop it in the box. They just never were able to come up with anything concrete based on the picture. This letter, it's it's either a wonderful bit of hope or a cruel prank. Which Which do you think it is? I don't think it was a cruel prank. I look at the picture and I can see things that are an uncanny resemblance between the boy in the picture and the the children. Um, there's there are things about the mouth and the eyebrows that are distinctly possible similarities. But also, then I look at the picture and it could be anyone. I mean, it could be anybody of Italian descent. It's it's very difficult to say what it was. The wording was so particular. I think it may be somebody who knew something, and we just don't know. Maybe maybe the children survived the fire but were desperately afraid to come home because they were told there would be repercussions. It's, Or maybe it was some form of Stockholm Syndrome, or maybe it was just somebody trying to string the parents on to spend more money with an investigator. It's, it's just very hard to tell how these things can transpire so many years later. It's, it, it could have been a terrible prank. It could have been entirely valid, but we've not been able to come up with any resolution for it. So your family must have some personal theories about what happened that night. What do you suspect? I shouldn't say what do you hope happened, because the, the hopeful side of this 
would still involve a horrible kidnapping. But but the chance that they survived is obviously wonderful at the same time. Do you have a, a personal theory as to what actually happened that night? It just seems to me that it was a night where everything went wrong. I think that it is possible that this was supposed to be. My, my grandfather was a brilliant and outspoken man. He was self-educated, but he had an insatiable desire for knowledge. He read everything he could get his hands on. He was fiercely proud to be American, even though literally Italian was his first language. He didn't allow Italian to be spoken in his home. The children all spoke English, and he did not understand the nationalism among the Italian community to keep their ties in the way he felt like he was American, that everyone that lives in the United States is American and should be proud of that. And I think that it's possible my grandfather may have agitated some in the community. And, you know, if I don't have any reason, I'd have no knowledge that would lead me to say what I do. It's just pure speculation, but it just seems very likely that the fire was intended to be a warning and that the phone call and the knock on the roof were efforts to get the family to come out and to not burn by the fire, that it was intended that the fire only be a threat. And I don't know, the children stayed up very late that night. My aunt had brought little toys home with her from the dime store where she worked. And the younger children had asked to be able to stay up for a little while and play of Christmas Eve. And my grandparents had said that it was fine and that they were just to go to bed. My aunt was on the couch watching them, and she fell asleep at some point. I'm, I've always wondered whether the children heard something outside and ran outside thinking it was Santa or somebody else coming to visit and ran into something that they shouldn't have seen. And whoever was starting the fire was confronted with the possible or the improbable circumstance of having five children right there that they needed to deal with witnesses to what was supposed to just be a threat to my grandparents. It's hard to tell. It's it's only speculation, but that seems to be one of the more probable circumstances is that the children encountered something that they shouldn't and either they were kidnapped from that or they were taken elsewhere and killed. It's just impossible for us to know. I know that there's been a lot of attention to this story since the Web Sleuth site published the information about it, and there have been a good number of articles written that have been published on the Internet about the site, and there's a Facebook page and all kinds of things that have been done that have brought attention to the story. And maybe it's just been too long since then for anything to be revealed but it seems to me if the children survived long after the fire and they were in the United States, that some information would have come forth to give us a, a clue about what happened that night. It, it seems more likely to me that the children were either taken elsewhere or that they didn't perish in the fire, but they did perish soon thereafter. 
What did the authorities in the fire department decide was the cause of the fire? It was ruled faulty wiring, but it appeared that the lines were not burned, that they were physically cut. So I'm guessing that since this was never considered anything other than an accident, that there has been no attempt by the Fayetteville Police Department to re-examine this case at all. Yes, the, the, the police stopped the investigation decades ago. It's entirely closed. I have a copy of the state police file, um, and it it's one of those things where they certainly paid attention. It wasn't that my grandparents were entirely ignored, but it was. it's clear that the law enforcement community believed that my grandparents were grieving and unable to accept the truth. How has this affected your life? Is is it something that you think about regularly? And when you do have a family reunion, for instance, do you and your family members discuss this? No, it's never really been that. My mother was so much younger than the other children that, um, you know, my mom was two when the fire occurred and the next closest sibling was 16. So really, my Aunt Marion and my mom were the two that were at home that this fell to, that they were responsible or they were the most interested in helping my grandparents investigate and communicate with the law enforcement agencies and with the FBI and with elected officials. So really, it was more of a role that Marion and my mom took. And my Mary, my Aunt Marion moved to Cleveland when she married. So as my mom grew up, this was more her role with my grandparents. And I, I want to make sure that it's clear that this wasn't the only thing that occupied my grandparents. They, they were investigating this, but my grandfather continued on with his business. He was a successful businessman. He had a, a trucking company that all of his sons worked in until they no longer worked. They all retired from solder trucking. And my mom went to college in Montgomery. I mean, this was a family that continued on. It continued to thrive. And they had this mystery, this horrible thing that happened to them. But they didn't stagnate. They continued to be a family. They continued to love each other. They continued to be deeply devoted. So it was a tragedy, but it wasn't all there is. So when we're together as a family, it's normal family stuff. I mean, I grew up going to my grandmother's house every Sunday, and we opened the gate and the billboard was right there. And my brother and I would be on the backside of the billboard playing when cars would stop and we would get real quiet and real still and just listen to people. I mean, it was something that was always there and it was something that really affected my grandmother. I remember how Christmas was for her, how difficult Christmas was for her, her entire life. But Betty, there were hams and there were pies and there were cakes and we got together and had presents and my grand, we made sure my grandmother was never alone on Christmas Eve. We went there every Christmas Eve and stayed until as late as we possibly could, usually approaching midnight. 
every year until she came to live with us. And we're, we were always sensitive of how hard that night was for her. But there was life. There was always life in this family. It wasn't just this tragedy. It's a real testament to your grandparents that they were able to stay strong through this and continue their search and never give up looking for their missing children. But they were acutely cognizant that their children who were still there needed to be supported and loved and fostered and didn't let the unanswered questions get in the way of embracing the family that was there right in front of them. Yeah, oh, definitely. If, if this is anything, it's certainly a tragedy, but it's also a love story. My grandparents loved each other tremendously. They were incredibly close, and they were wonderful parents to all of their children, not just the ones who perished. It wasn't only about them. They never forgot those children, but they were wonderful to their other children and to their grandchildren. I, I loved my grandmother dearly. I was too young to remember my grandfather, but I know he and my brother were incredibly close. They just adored each other. It's, this, this was a family that was full of love. For the people who are listening right now, I want them to know that you were very reluctant to do this interview with me. But as you told me in one of our earlier conversations, you want to hold to the promise that your family made your grandmother to keep this case and story alive. Yes, my grandmother asked that my mom continue to keep the story alive, not because she felt any need for um, attention or anything like that. She just didn't want to abandon hope until it was certain that there was no hope of finding answers. So my mom promised my grandmother that she would continue to look for the truth. And as an extension, that's why I've agreed to do this interview and to continue to tell the story. It's, it's not something that personally is easy or that I seek to do, but I feel like that is what my grandmother would want. If anyone has any information on the case now, how can they get that to you? One of the things that I've tried to do is to provide some insulation for my family in this. It's, it's, un, it's sometimes unsettling how much attention can come from this circumstance without information. And we, while we are interested in hearing everybody's thoughts and information, we try to keep ourselves a little bit separate so that we can continue to raise our children and and have our lives. So we ask that you go to the public media locations for this. There's a Web Sleuth site that is specific to the Sodder children. There's a Facebook page that is for the Sodder children. And I can be found on Facebook. And if you want to send me a private message, then I do check my Facebook messages and can also see the Web Sleuth feed. So if there's any information that would go toward my grandmother's goal of finding the truth, whether it's good truth, bad truth, or otherwise, we we would encourage that to come forth. Well, this has been wonderful. I appreciate so much your time today. Well, I, I appreciate the interest in this story after all of these years. Thanks.
This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world, I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.